Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is Robin Shepherd, chairman of Bespoke Hotels and Pure Hotel Legend. Coming up on today's show, Robin drops a bombshell that none of us saw coming. So I ended up marrying a man in open-toed sandals. Phil wishes that the waitress had been wearing slippers. Hotels or the restaurants that are within your local environment. And we wonder what on earth it was that got us to this sentence. Your trousers around your ankles and you're, you're concentrating hard. A little light relief would always <laughs> provide a moment of happiness. All that and a whole lot more as Robin talks us through his journey to date. As you can imagine, getting time in Robin's diary was a real challenge. Nevertheless, he was kind enough to make time for us in late February 2020, a few weeks before COVID-19 entered our lives. Plans change, but the story remains the same. It should also be noted that the meeting was recorded during a busy breakfast service. As a result, apologies for the audio in places, but we hope you'll agree Robin's story is just superb and therefore worth it. Enjoy. Well, good day and welcome to another Hospitality Meets podcast with me, your host, Phil Street. And today I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast something of an, an absolute legend of the industry. You'll probably not thank me for saying that. And actually, the whole reason for why the podcast exists, which I'll, I'll talk you through in a, in a second. But um, yes, delighted to welcome Robin Shepherd. Good morning, Phil. It's a pleasure. Be gentle with me, please. <laughs> Don't worry about that. I think it's probably the other way around, to be honest. But um, yeah, normally I kick things off by asking you your story, and we will get onto that in a second. But I just wanted to fill you in a little bit of a, a tiny story that kind of led me to this point. I was at a leadership event put on by David Guile a couple of years ago, which you were very kindly talking at. Until then, I'd always been aware of you, but had never really fully known your story. And your story is quite incredible. And really, I walked away from that feeling very, very inspired. And it was one of the reasons why I thought these, there's lots of amazing stories that go on in this industry. Um, and I just thought people need to hear these incredible stories and that, coupled with two pantomimes later, which reconnected me with my presenter head, that's why we're here. So thank you. Pleasure. So, without further ado, if you could tell us who you are and what do you do? Uh, my name is Robin Shepherd. I am uh, 65. I'm the chairman of Bespoke Hotels, which is probably the largest independently owned hotel management company in Britain. I'm also chairman of the Institute of Hospitality, uh, which is an honorary title, but hard work in terms of trying to put measures in place to improve the lot of those who are in our profession and we're actively seeking chartered status now which would mean there was a professional qualification at the end of um, the, the educational process and right. we're very excited about that and think that could be a bit of a game changer for our industry particularly in light of the appalling slight on our industry that uh, the Home Secretary is currently waging in her blind stupidity yes uh, well, that, I think that's probably a, a subject matter that we could debate for. Well, there's no debate, really. It's no. just shambolic. But but in any case. Uh, so, aged 15 and three quarters, I was doing one of various holiday jobs to earn myself enough cash to buy myself a bicycle. And the age of 15 and three quarters, I turned up at a West Country hotel, which will remain nameless, where the restaurant... Um, it was covered in straw. It was a Polynesian restaurant, which basically meant pineapple sat on every dish. There were trolleys everywhere, trolleys for the hors d'oeuvre, trolleys for the main course, carping trolley, trolleys for pudding, trolleys for cheese and biscuits. 
um, and the hotel manager was very tall and thin. I never did find out his real name, but he was known affectionately because he was long and thin as Streaky Bacon. <laughs> I innocently assumed his name was Mr. Bacon, and that's what I called him, as I noticed him draped across the bar on one Saturday night on day four of my work experience. He'd obviously had a few schooners of share in the afternoon, because I said to him, Mr. Bacon, are you all right, sir? No, I'm not chuffing well, all right. At this point, he pirouetted and collapsed over a coffee table and knocked himself right out. <laughs> and on the way down, was heard to say, my wife's just run off with the restaurant manager. I'm certainly not all right. This is where the training yeah. kick kicked in. I put a napkin over his head and dragged him by the armpits into a broom cupboard straight out of Basil Fawlty. Horse <laughs> whispering into his ear, does this mean you won't be taking the orders tonight, sir? It was one of those sink or swim dinners. We sank without trace. <laughs> my worst line of the evening was when one of the guests said, uh, waiter, is this fruit salad fresh? And I said, well, it's fresh out of a tin, madam. Thinking I've been terribly clever. And of course, she didn't see the funny side at all. I got home to see my parents that evening. and said, how did you get on? And I claimed that I would never, ever, ever work in a hotel ever again. Right. And I was hooked. That was it. I was um, uh, unable to think about much else. Went off to college. Studied at um, Oxford Brooks in the days when it had a training restaurant and all the rest of it. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, three happy years of uh, living the life of a student and whizzing down to the Inn on the Park in London, working for Ramon Pajares and his banqueting team, getting back at four o'clock in the morning and then trying to get into lectures the following morning. So a ribald but happy time. Joined British Transport Hotels, which included my first gig at the Adelphi Hotel in Liverpool, fresh out of college as a trainee. After three months, the immediate boss I had said, look, Shepard, we're promoting you. We're, we think you know what you're doing. We're going to stop this uh, training lark and we're sending you up to St. Andrews to the Old Course Hotel. You're going to be assistant manager there. I said, well, that's very kind of you, but I don't want to go. He said, but you don't understand. You'll get stripier trousers and more money <laughs> and bigger keys and more responsibility. I said, I still don't want to go. He said, why? And I said, well, it's a question of demand and supply. Here I am working in this hotel. There are 18 members of staff living in, and I'm the only male. And I really like those odds. Um, Very good. Needless to say, I got a clip around the ear, and I went off to Lucas the following morning in a snowstorm to find that a very blizzardy St. Andrews welcomed me, and that's where I learned to play golf. Not terribly well, but it was a fine place to learn. Not a bad place to learn at all. Um, and so my time with British Transport Hotels started there and then. And you press the fast-forward button, and Went up through the ranks reasonably quickly, uh, left uh, British Transport after four further hotels, took over a conference centre in Colchester, which is now the Edge Hotel School, Wittenhoe yep. House. Well, I was the first general manager there when it was trying to blend looking after academics as well as uh, looking after independent customer and running weddings and so on. A few happy years there, joined Bartiscathlon Hall in North Wales at Clamdidno working for Historic House Hotels, which aesthetically is probably still the nicest building I've ever worked in. It was beautifully observed and really fastidiously delivered by the owner, Richard Broyd, who later bequeathed his three owned assets to the National Trust. Right. Then I got my big gig, went off to uh, run the Ligon Arms in Broadway for Douglas Barrington, who was a really fierce and tough boss, but boy, did I learn a lot from him, particularly in terms of anticipating what guests might need and they say the hardest lessons are the ones you remember the most and I said it was some, some hard lessons so I survived three years with Douglas 
at a time when the dollar was incredibly strong against the pound. So we were wall-to-wall Americans everywhere. Right. Extraordinary lessons about marketing, about service, about putting the extra mile into what you do. And I have to say, a really joyous culture amongst the staff who took great delight in working there. Um, so anyway, I probably cantered long enough in my career. I, I took several further jobs, including opening the Royal Berkshire Hotel for Hilton, which was my first experience of a major, major international company. Yeah. Moved from there to the Bath Spa Hotel um, and ran that for four years before I was given more hotels to run and ended up running six hotels for them before the penny finally dropped and I decided I wanted to set up on my own. Um, so, And I've been doing that for the past... 20 years. A bit of a laxative at the beginning when you first start. <laughs> you end up with £20 in your bank account at the end of the month and you owe people £50 and you're thinking, well, do I give everybody, do I give one person £20 or do I ever give everybody a, a pound for each fiver I owe them? And eventually you work out your rhythm. And eventually you have £60 in your account to pay £50 and it comes right. But yeah. for the first four or five years, it did feel like a very exercised startup business um, but we're here today and we're still going strong i was going to say so that that was bespoke hotels that was bespoke hotels at the beginning my partner liked horse riding racing so we uh, couldn't think what to call the company so as a working title furlong was the name of the uh, of the company right um but every time we did a pitch we realized we were using words like tailor-made and customized and a bespoke solution and i suddenly had an epiphany one day and said that's the name of the company and thankfully the name was free, so we registered the URL, and then we registered the limited trading company. And it seems to have suited us reasonably comfortably ever since. Right. Um, where I, I think a lot of people might look strangely upon us in the early days, um, when branding seemed to be so crucial that if you had a Hotel Duvan or a Malmaison or a Holiday Inn Express, you, you built the formula and then you just repeated it and rolled it out. We felt there was still a place in the market for the local Hero Hotel. Um, if you look in Edinburgh at the George Hotel, which has changed its names 18 times in the last eight years, yeah. um, uh, but you ask the taxi driver, it's still called the George. Yeah. So why bother spending all that money on rebadging something? That's very, good, very true. So we've stuck with that, and Bespoke has always been a very soft signature. And perversely, we're now starting to see some of the major groups coming back into that space of so the Curio Collection by Hilton. Yeah. I was going to say. Autograph, signature, and all these other names where people are suddenly saying, hang on, there's some low hanging fruit here. We, if we're a bit looser in terms of how we structure these deals, there's many more independently minded hotels that could fit our distribution machine. And unusual, unusually back in Prasm with a lot of hotel companies now, we do do the management. Um, we've seen since 2006 a metamorphosis where major players like Marriott not only have sold off the real estate, but they've also gone into franchise agreements, which is much more labor light yeah. um, and machine and technology centric. Um, so for us just to carry on with our middle section of the business saying, we'll worry about the top line a bit, but we'll worry about the bottom line a lot. And we worry about the middle of the account an enormous amount yeah. in order to get the bottom of the bottom line. So it's quite interesting to see the models for Ackle with their M galleries and Mercure brands and so on because we're in a slightly tangential space to, to them. Yeah. So how many properties do you have now? 
We have a 96 under management lease or partial ownership in the UK, uh, and we have something just over 100 overseas, um, and nearly all of those are marketing agreements whereby someone in Koh Samui or the Caribbean will say, I don't want to employ a sales manager on the island, but I do need UK audiences to come to my hotel. So we set up a London-based sales office with a Chester, which interestingly seems to drive a lot of business to the Caribbean, uh, a Chester really? branch, yes. I want to have that. Uh, well, it's a, it's a combination of a number of travel companies locating themselves in the Chester area a few years ago. Um, the legacy is that people still view Chester as where the most important uh, wholesale discussions should take place. Yeah. So that's worked quite well for us, almost by accident. Um, uh, we've set up one joint venture in Dubai and created something called Bespoke Residences, which is a service department business where we have a joint venture partner called IFA, who are based on Palm Jumeirah. And we have a large number of apartments which we market and brand, and the local team do the fulfillment. So putting the fresh milk in the, in the fridge, um, changing the beds, uh, doing the check-in, doing the check-out procedure is done locally, but it's all done under our, our brands. So. Yeah. And if you like a holiday trip in April, it's a great place to be. Yeah, well, April's on the cusp, isn't it? Okay. It is, but in Dubai, it's a nice combo. Really. Yeah. The temperature and the lack of moisture is, is, is very attractive there. I, I think there was a point where perhaps our ambitions to expand overseas were stronger than they are now. Right. And the reason they've lessened, I think, is simply the, the speed of the rollout and expansion in the UK, which has forced us to concentrate on the on the core business. Yeah. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It's much better to build from solid foundations than it is to build solid superstructure on top of weaker foundations. So, sure. Um, we've trimmed our sales slightly and, and not tried very hard to expand overseas. Having said all that, we are building uh, our first hotel in Dublin, uh, which will open in about 18 months' time on the River Liffey, which we're excited about. Right. Well, that seems to be our marketplace, which is on the move at the moment. I can imagine getting hold of real estate in there might be quite tricky. Yeah. So you've got to make it count, uh, I, I guess. Well, it's a great little property wrought with all sorts of issues regarding planning because it's four Georgian terraces in a row and there's all sorts right. of nuances around the star rating system and so on. But we are there now and work is underway. I think what's been a pleasant surprise for me along the way as a dyed-in-the-wool hotelier, I've discovered a creative side we we developed our own hotel in Bermondsey Square back in 2009 yeah which is the first time I had to oversee the design and layout and flow of the building which I greatly enjoyed thankfully we got the timing right we, we opened just as we were coming out of the recession yeah although when I signed the deal I was probably should have been taken straight off to jail for insanity <laughs> um, because we were right in the eye of the recession at the time but it, timing turned out thankfully to be just perfect and more recently we discovered a building in King Street in Manchester which as soon as I saw it I thought I was an old New York uh, we present it Gotham um, yeah just as a working title a bit like bespoke really yeah social media by accident got hold of it and suddenly there was noise and I thought well if we've not issued a press release or done any pictures but the name is out there and it's creating this much of a buzz the name has to be worth holding on to yeah so we opened Gotham in April 2015, and bless it, it's been a 90% plus occupancy from the get-go. It's been right. extraordinarily popular and a great 
joy for us to have somewhere that seems to have become um, a byword in the Manchester market for somewhere cool and hip to, to, to go to. Yeah. Did you have to approach DC about some form of rights or something like that? We applied to register the name Gotham. There is a funny story here. Um, uh, as Hotel Gotham, deliberately. And uh, everything was sailing through until two days before the hearing was due to have passed through when a pack about six inches deep arrived in two ring-bound folders from Simmons and Simmons, who are the largest intellectual property lawyers in the world, saying, Oi, you're on our intellectual property uh, universe. Uh, we own Gotham the movie. Clear off. And right. by the way, we've also noticed that the silhouette of a bat is being used in your dusting chocolate on your cappuccinos. <laughs> so I was in a bit of a, a fog at this point, trying to decide what the tactics would be. And I thought, well, if I just ignore the Gotham piece and focus on the cappuccinos, that might just buy me a little bit more time. And it's terribly close to when it just sails through anyway. Yeah. So I wrote back to them saying, I'm terribly sorry. This is an oversight on our part. We've immediately deceased or stopped the use of the silhouette of the bat. But I'm going to put a new motif on my cappuccinos. I'm going to use my own Christian name, which is Robin. So I hope you won't mind too much if we <laughs> remove the Batman image. And I use my, or do you own my Christian name as well in my own hotel? Yeah. Of course, they went apoplectic with rage. Um, and uh, As lawyers like to do. As lawyers like to do. But thankfully, whilst all that furore was taking place, the Gotham name sailed through. And I got a very bitter acknowledgement from Simmons and Simmons shaking their fist at me saying, don't do that again, you naughty boy. Right. So we've got the name and uh, we have the opportunity to roll it out. We've got some sites in Glasgow um, and Brighton and probably in Bristol too. So our intention is to, to do a few more of them. Did you ever envisage when you were um, taking over from that restaurant manager back in at the beginning of your career that you'd be taking on one of the biggest lawyers in the world no, no, no. all I wanted to do was raise enough money to buy myself a bicycle my emotions <laughs> were pretty, pretty lame at the time but it's interesting though isn't it how um, just uh, in a name that, that people just got a hold of it and all of a sudden you've got yourself a, a brand yes there are certain virtues that sit behind that brand we overate the style guide part of it and I probably sweated the detail more than I've ever done to the detriment of paying attention elsewhere in the business on getting that hotel right. Um, it was a bit like giving birth, and I, I was both mother and midwife, I think, at the same time. Right, yeah. But I'm enormously proud of it, and I'm very proud of the team who've bought into that messaging and, and kept it kept it going in such a crisp and fluent and hopefully joyful way, because it's all very well having grand hotels, but they can be a bit serious, and they can look down their noses at you, and I just wanted somewhere that felt fresh and zingy and humorous, yeah. and yet elegant and stylish, and hopefully we've achieved that. Gluttons for Punishment, we've just done another one. Right. Um, this one's a bit bigger, Gotham in, uh, in 60 bedrooms. Um, we've just opened a 189-bedroom hotel, again in Manchester, because we think it's still a pretty buoyant market, called Hotel Brooklyn, on the premise that we wanted something that became a sort of sisterly property to, to Gotham. Gotham is unashamedly five-star, Brooklyn is unashamedly four-star, and we've been able to make some spectacularly hammy puns in there. So the rooftop banqueting hall is called Brooklyn Heights. Right. Um, we've, uh, we've created a restaurant 
called Runyon's, based on Damon Runyon, who's written various books in a sort of Brooklyn language, is a, a Runyon-esque or Runyonese language. And we've replicated that messaging with uh, calling uh, the upstairs loos Janes and Johns and the downstairs loos Guys and Dolls. And the, the, the storyboarding goes on there. Yeah. You may have guessed I like to put personality into hotels. I, I wasn't like, picking that up at all, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like there to be a storyboard. I like the staff to dress in a costume. Um, when we do staff recruitment, it's a dress rehearsal. If you come for an audition, do you want to be a star and twinkle on our stage? Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. And perhaps just as you found doing the, the pantomime with Springboard and Bob Silk, any excuse to get dressed up in a Any excuse. ladies' outfit. Yeah. Um, but what, what joy and what fun it is when it, it comes off well. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think the um, the it's not... I've never thought of this industry as, as rocket science per se. Um, and actually, I come back to the my, my own brief story that we talked about just before we switched the microphone on. My um, my mother and father started a hotel with no knowledge, no experience, but the knowledge that they did have was what they like as consumers, and it's not a bad place to start. And I think if you if you are a consumer of hospitality all over the world, you pick up things that you think that's a great idea, love that, wonderful, and I think the bringing the personality into the the hotel is, I would suggest, is what people want. Well, I think there are core needs that people have when they come to a hotel does the bathroom work is the air conditioning easy to work out yeah can you draw the curtains do i have a comfortable night's sleep is the lighting good in the bathroom that's another one for my my wife Uh, and so often you'll find a a bedroom and bathroom designed by a man who has no idea how women really like to do their hair do their makeup so yeah you learn as you as you go with that i suppose the elements i was always so interested in was the delight and the surprise um, stupid example, but many years ago, I toyed with the idea of um, what would you like to read if you were sitting in the gents' loo in your hotel? Right. So I used to put a copy of the Beano on the back door because of, of your trousers around your ankles and you're, you're concentrating hard. And a little light relief would always <laughs> provide a moment of happiness in your day. You might say it's a bit cheesy and a bit naff, but. We had Tim Brook Taylor, the uh, the goodie, staying with us, and he wrote me a lovely handwritten note, which I've still got at home, saying it was the the most vulnerable moment of his life when he's never laughed so loudly. People must have been very shocked as to why he was laughing when he started to read about Desperate Dan, whilst um, he was abluting. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I suppose the thread is try not to take yourselves too seriously but do concentrate the bit that other people looking in at our industry perhaps don't understand are the soft skills they may not be quantifiable hard technical skills but there are so many emotionally intelligent skills in our business which define success and how many businesses do you feel disengaged from if you don't get eye contact from a very quick point in your arrival um, and a smile that helps a great deal Um, so it's it's been an interesting um Interesting journey thus far. A lot of people think I should hurry up and retire now. I've turned 65, but I'm still having a bit of fun, so right. I'd like to keep going if I possibly can. And why not? And try and stay as young young at heart as possible in the process. Yeah. So what's what's next for Bespoke? Well, specifically on Brooklyn, we start work in April on the second one, which will be next to the Leicester Tigers Rugby Club um, right. on the Welford Road. I think they're struggling this year, aren't they? Uh, the rugby team's 
had a horrendous run of bad luck and ill fortune, which is a, a great shame because historically they've always been one of the powerhouses of the yeah. British game. I'm sure those days will come, hopefully in good time, to see the hotel next door. Indeed, yes. So, so that's the next new build. Um, we're just finishing off a hotel in Coventry, which is in the old Evening Telegraph building, which will be called the Telegraph Hotel. That will open in September. Slightly smaller, it's 88 bedrooms, but done in a Mad Men 1950s homage sort of style with lots of authentic material for those days. No avocado suites in the bathrooms, but oh, what a shame. certainly a, a, a colourway and a, a look and feel which I think is redolent of high style back in the 50s. So yeah. quite a triumph we can pull that off. So we're excited about that. And then in uh, February of 21, we open a new hotel in uh, Sun Street, which I think is one of London's, if not the shortest street in London, right next to Liverpool Street Station. Right. And that'll be a grand five-star hotel with 41 bedrooms uh, in a conventional format with club, bar and restaurant, but then over 200 apartments, which it will service. Right. So people will buy the apartments, but put the management of their rooms back into our inventory, and hopefully we'll please the uh, the occupants by giving them customers when they're not there if they want or simply providing a decent housekeeping and concierge service when they're there themselves. Yeah. Needless to say, most of the stock has been sold off to the Far East already as an investment and it's going to be very interesting to see over the next 12 months with coronavirus so topical quite how the sales pan out over the next eight, six, six to seven months up yeah. until so those are just some examples of things where... Yeah, you're certainly not standing still or sitting on your hands. Mm. Um, and a hotel in Liverpool Street is music to my ears because that's my mainline station. So okay. it's, well, a, it's well, Hopefully you'll have somewhere to pop in for a heavily overpriced coffee. I can't wait for that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so what would you say as a, as a stalwart of the industry, as a legend, as I said at the beginning, um, what would you say to somebody who was starting out in the industry as a, as a big pearl of wisdom uh, zigzag go and work as often as you can for people or businesses that are well known because when people look at your CV they'll recognise the business you've worked for um, and that will help your cause if they say oh you've worked for a Michelin star restaurant or you work for an hotelier that's well known yep. you're better off working in better known and well loved businesses but Move around and make sure every time you stretch yourselves by going for that next promotion. But slow down as you go. So in the first year, you might do a year with one outfit, then do 15 months with the next, then 18 months with the next, and so on until you get to parcels of three years. Yeah. Up until the age of 30, I would suggest that you, unless you're consistently being promoted within that business, the maximum you should be doing is three years in one business because you need to learn a different management style and a different culture. You need to be mobile and prepared to move home quite a lot. Yeah. Because uh, if you restrict your movement to the hotels or the restaurants that are within your local environment, you're restricting your career progression. And you either find that attractive or you don't. But for me, one of the main attractions is the opportunity to travel. So I got to know and work in Scotland. I got to know and work in, in Wales and all over Britain as well. So I feel I don't exactly have an encyclopedic knowledge of British Isles, but I've worked and lived in most of it and yeah. I, I find that a lovely thing so going back to that person who started out in the industry you're zigzagging you're working for famous people and you're asking questions 
People tend to feed people who ask and are hungriest. So the hungrier you are to learn and to improve, um, the faster you'll get on. Yeah. I'll give you one case. I had one young man who came to work for me some time ago. He gave me just under three years, and the French dad reached the point. I said, look, you're doing this job superbly. I can't give you another promotion in the business. Um, there just isn't an extra opportunity. I don't have any other hotels in Perlieu to be able to offer you. So I rang up Raymond Blanc and said, I've got this boy here. You couldn't take him for a stage, could you, for a few weeks, see how he gets on. Never right. saw him again. Really? Raymond said, thank you very much, and yeah. um, adopted him. Funny story, he then invited me to be the celebrant at his humanist wedding in the south of France, because we kept in touch. Yeah. So I ended up marrying a man in open-toed sandals. I should explain that um, I was the celebrant. He was standing in a vineyard next to the Canal du Midi, just outside Carcassonne, in a linen suit with some rather elegant open-toed sandals. And I, um, I conducted the ceremony. My, my, my wife, Susie, is um, not dyslexic, but she certainly loves to misplace words. So when she got home and all her friends asked her, how did the weekend go? She said, I was absolutely marvellous. What exactly happened? So well, uh, Robin was the celibate at a humanitarian wedding. So, of course, they fell about laugh rather than being the celebrant at a humanist wedding. Yeah, there you go. Very good. So we've kept in touch. And it's just nice to see someone like that saying, feed me, feed me, feed me, give me more knowledge, give me more knowledge. Yeah. And, of course, you get so much return on that person because they're learning and growing in front of you. Absolutely. But I think it's also, it's refreshing to, to hear that you had that level of engagement in, because it, you, know, you could have quite easily, I suppose, we've got a good guy here, we'll just you know, work him until you know, he, he's ready to move on of his own accord. No, but, I've always believed in the principle of the factory and I, I've, I look back now and I think, I quoted at the start, that a lot of the best lessons I learned were from the hardest taskmasters. Yeah. But I was learning and absorbing that, that knowledge. Yeah. Um, I don't think I have worked with an enormous number of bosses that I truly liked, but I pretty much respected every one of them because I was able to learn something from them. Yeah. So be a sponge, absorb, but don't just sit there and wait to be fed. You have to ask. You have to say, you have to volunteer for things. Give me another task. What else can I learn? Can I be helpful in another area? Yeah. And you should, if you show some aptitude, your peers won't put you into a situation where you're constantly doing the menial jobs, they'll give you more and more responsibility and you can grow. Yeah. We've got an extraordinary incident at the moment of one young lady whose father ran a massive business in the UK who's decided to step out of her current career because she feels disengaged from it and has come to work for us. She's super bright. We've got high hopes for her and she's just desperate for knowledge. And so, well, you do realise you're going to have to start at the bottom. We'll, we'll whiz through it, but you've got to do reception, you've got to do housekeeping, you've got to yep. do the bar, you've got to do the restaurant, etc., etc. And But this, this is a girl in her early 30s who's prepared to make that commitment. So yeah. we have a real duty of care to nurture her and see her, see her grow. Well, it's a two-way thing, isn't it, at the end of the day? And I, I always talk about respect goes an awful long way, but it, is, it's a, it has to be both ways. You, you know, the, the individual has to respect the business and, and vice versa. I think when I first started out with British Transport Hotels, it was a very hierarchical company. The general managers had their own flats in the buildings. They had meals delivered to them by room service. If their wives very rarely cooked because all the, the kitchen would generate their meals at any time and if they entertained food would be delivered by the hotel to them and if you wanted to speak to the general manager you needed an appointment yeah um, and I just the flattening of that communication 
process, I think, is a good thing. But it doesn't take a really raised voice to earn respect these days. I think if you show empathy, you listen and you nurture, uh, that trust will come. Yeah. And certainly with Bespoke, I'm, I'm the sort of grandfather of the company now in many, many ways, but I've always wanted that culture which was paternal. And if someone's not up to the mark or is never going to make it because they will never have the skill set, we can be brutal when we need to be, but we do it very quietly. And I, I loathe having to assassinate people's careers. That's not what we want to do. But yeah. to those of us who are keen to and buy into the sort of the format that we have, we like to keep them fresh. And we've got one general manager with us who's been with us for 18 of the 20 years, um, who's on his sixth appointment with us now. Right. So he's moved around and got a little bit more progression each time. Still appears to be very happy in the business, but... Probably learning with each... He's still learning, he's still growing, um, and he's given us voluntarily so much back because you know, we've we've invested in his career. Yep, no, absolutely. What do you think, as, a, as an industry, we do well for those that are on the outside looking in? There is a fellowship in hotels and there's an automatic default that hoteliers look out for other hoteliers. There is a bonhomie camaraderie, which is extraordinary. It's genuine when you see an hotelier or a restaurateur winning something, his peers and his rivals will be pleased for him. Yeah. And I don't think it's insincere. I think it, it's palpable. It, it exists. Yeah. Um, so I think that's quite unusual. The transferability of the skills is extraordinary. I, I used to sit on the board of a hotel in Johannesburg, so three times a year I'd fly out to sit in the board meetings, thinking there'd be all sorts of cultural differences. And I'd meet the same personality types in the boardroom there as I did 11 hours away <laughs> back in the UK. So I think there's a, there's a common language of how you go about the hotel and restaurant trade. And yeah. skills are entirely transferable. So if you want to see San Diego, Sao Paulo, or Cape Town, then go join a, a hotel business yeah. or a restaurant business and see where it takes you. If you want to stay in your hometown and not really look beyond the end of your street, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but if you do want to travel, I just think the opportunities are in there. The world really is your oyster. Um, no, I, I completely I, agree. I think the other point which we alluded to right at the start is the speed with which one can grow. If you have enough aptitude and acumen, then uh, you can get promoted pretty quickly and find yourselves running a business at a pretty early age, certainly well before you're 30. Yeah. And the skills are many that are required there. And I would argue that because there are so many moving parts and so many transactions that take place within a hotel or a restaurant business, that would prepare you, prepare you incredibly well to move into any other business with those life skills. Yeah, Ab- absolutely. And I think equally, we uh, come back to the point of, of empathy, which is part of the, the overall emotional intelligence piece. If, you're, you, you, if you have the capability to make people feel special, uh, in some form, whether that's in, in a little way or a, a massive way, um, you know that's that's not a low skill. That's you know I'd argue that that's one of the greatest skills you can possess. One of the skills that Douglas Barrington taught me was that when he wasn't in the hotel, he'd leave a note with reception. This is before mobile phones. There were certain guests that he wanted to make feel special, so he would get a phone call wherever he was in the world, even if he was just at his house to say, Mr. So-and-so's just checked in. He'd leave at 10 minutes, then he'd call the room and say, do you have everything on my team looking after you? That was more powerful than him being in the building to welcome people because he thought they'd taken time out from his busy schedule to bid them welcome. Yeah. So that's a trick I've used 
ever since. It's a simple little device, but it's a question of how do you impact that customer and make them feel celebrated and special. Yeah, no, absolutely. Where do you look for inspiration these days? Oh, I'm complete tart when it comes to that sort of thing. <laughs> Nick, any idea that's going? Um, uh, so I'm, I'm constantly viewing what other hotels are doing. I'm, I'm very nosy when it comes to seeing what new restaurants are opening, where the food movements are going and so yeah. on. We do have, they're not formulate, but we do have fairly regular meetings internally as a team to encourage some of the aspiring managers to feed ideas upwards and outwards. Yep. So that's a process and a harvest, if you like, of, of ideas, which is not mechanical, but it certainly has a, a formula attached to it. Yep. But the rest of the time, I suppose, I like catalysts. So when dreaming up Gotham and dreaming up Brooklyn, I would turn to one or two people and say, this is where I've got my eyes, ideas too. Could you please uh, give me some inspiration or your thoughts on that and tell me what's rubbish about it and what might work? And then the, the, the thoughts come along. So I'm, I've discovered a sort of latent creative side in, in myself to keep it going. Yep. One of my areas of passion is that, partly because of an illness which I um, uh, had in my um, early 50s, I've been terribly aware of how poor hotels are handling the needs of disabled community. Right. So we've set up something called the Blue Badge Access Awards, which is designed to encourage designers, architects, and people in our industry to craft and um, fashion hotel, bedroom, bathroom, and toilet facilities, which are much better than the Disability and Equality Act has stipulated. There's historically been a functionality to saying, oh, those are yeah, the DDA that's the rules. minimum that we must They're do. very hospitalized, they're antiseptic, and then if an able-bodied person gets allocated it, we apologize, apologize for it and build an discount. Well, that's bloody stupid. Yeah. So why not say, I'd like a disabled suite, please? Or um, I'd, I'd like one of those rooms because it's bigger and has easier access into the bathroom. So it, it doesn't penalize the able-bodied, but equally it doesn't make the disabled person feel that they're having to apologize for their inadequacies. So a bit of a cause, without giving Brooklyn too commercial a plug, we've overrated, <laughs> we've, we've overrated a bit there. The law says that one in 20 of your bedrooms should be DDA compliant. We've broken the rules and done one in 10. Okay. We now have two disabled suites. We have rooms with uh, concealed hoists so that quadriplegics, paraplegics can be transported from wheelchairs onto the bed and back again, yeah. but with a level of dignity and, and style attached to it. And all the bathrooms look and feel in the bedrooms. I think if you were put in as an able-bodied person, you'd be really hard-pressed to know that it was a DDA-compliant room. Right. That's brilliant. Now, by mistake, we were trying to come up with a, a working title. You'll notice the term working title comes yeah. a lot. <laughs> that means you're working, though. It means we're working. Yeah. With the Brooklyn theme, you're coming up with all sorts of names related to Brooklyn. So, Statue of Liberty, the word Liberty. Why don't we call them the Liberty Rooms? So you've heard it here first, but our attack on the marketplace now is to go out there and stop referring to these as accessible rooms or DDA-compliant rooms, but as Liberty Rooms because hopefully that's what you're giving the people who are staying there that quality. Yeah, brilliant. So we'll see. Yeah. That's, that sort of kicked off two days ago. Really? Yeah. Wow, that is off, off the press. Um, I have to say, this is one of the things that I love about uh, a strongly running business with 
great values is that you can actually beyond the core of your business which is you know to make people give people these spaces to feel special while they're away from their their home you're you're you're, you're actually solving problems here i've been banging on about this for a while and i'm quite gobby so i've ended up with a title of government spokesman for hospitality on the disabled movement right which basically means I think we're in charge of giving the various ministers, starting with Penny Mordaunt, that there's been four since I got involved in three years. Really? And that process has been, in theory, rewarding at the beginning, but slightly more frustrating because the connect between all the people wanting to impact... Let me give you an example. Sorry, yeah. I'm, I'm losing the thread slightly. That's all right. Scott Rail have just introduced an entirely new liveried rolling stock. I spent a fortune on it. It is not possible to find a wheelchair accessible space on the first class carriage. Really? It discriminates against disabled people. Therefore, by default, disabled people are second class citizens. Right, yeah. Give them a bloody hard time about it. It's a crass error, and I delight in it because they need to go and bloody well fix it. I'm sorry, yeah. I'm swearing twice. In this That's all right, profanity is allowed. Um, and if that can be lampooned and turned to an advantage. So Scott Bell say, we have so badly misjudged this, we have to go and reinvent these spaces. That means we need to take an able-bodied chair out and put in a wheelchair recess point in, in, in that carriage. That's what we must do. Yeah. And there are still so many uh, examples where people do not give it enough thought. It's the law, therefore I have to do the minimum. Once I've got past the minimum, I get on with the rest yeah. of my life. So we're trying to change hearts and minds. Long, long way to go. We're in our fourth year with the Blue Badge Access Awards. And now we've got one hotel we can say, well, we put our money where our mouth is. We've actually built one cool hotel, which has all the style nuances that you would hope for from a crisp new property, but at the same time has really thought through the disabled piece. Hopefully that will make people think in a different way and yep. get excited about it. So. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I'm always fascinated to to know, I suppose, that you, you know, you've had a, a, a long and illustrious career. Do you still have mentors at this stage of your career? People that you turn to, other than your <coughs> wife, which is usually the first place I turn to. But uh, well, she gives me a hard time about pretty much everything, so she she is a mentor of sorts, especially when she goes mental. Um, <laughs> I had this extraordinary event. I was at a, a trade event, and the person on my right said, "So, who are your heroes? Who are the people that you looked up to and learned from all these years ago?" And clearly, I've mentioned Douglas Barrington, but I also had. Michael Hurst, who was up here at one point, and Michael was inspirational. Characters like Ramon Pajares, who's past chairman of the Savoy Group for some time. And as I was describing these people, I realized they were all either dead or in their 80s, right. um, or pushing 80. So I then fastened onto one young Spur, who's got tons of chutzpah and energy and was making things happen in a, a completely contrarian fashion to most conventional hoteliers. And I went on and on and on about this young man, saying, well, he's my hero, even though he's not my elder. He's definitely someone I can learn from and get the energy from. Yeah. And this fellow carried on nodding sagely and, and grunting very mildly. And after about 10 minutes, I ran out of steam. And I said, so there he is. That, that's that's the, my answer to your question in terms of who's my mentor. I said, well, that was very interesting. I have to tell you now, he's my son. Wow. <laughs> so thank goodness I didn't say anything rude about yeah, it. No, absolutely. I'll rem- it'll remain nameless, but it's a true story. So, yeah. Yes, of course, there are mentors. My 
strongest mentor, I suppose. The yin and the yang is my business partner, I spoke. A fellow called Hayden Fenton. Hayden and I have always managed to meet in the middle because I would tend to look at a business from the top line downwards and work down from there. Hayden would always look at the bottom line and work upwards. Right. So we didn't tend to clash in terms of... And you just meet in the middle. Later, we'd meet in the middle. We could both read the business in the opposite way, but it just naturally gravitated to that sort of breakup. And then we introduced a very simple rule because it's a 50-50 share voting scheme, which has lasted us 20 years. If we both say yes, it's a yes. If one of us says no, the no always trumps the yes. So you don't waste time arguing about it. Just one person says no, we drop it immediately, move on to the next project until we're both aligned and it's both saying yes. Right. And that's, looking back, probably the most simple and yet the most effective method we've, we've, we've had. So hopefully we mentor each other on an almost daily basis. Yeah. And thankfully there is a level of intuition between us and now we can guesstimate what the other's going to think or how they would interpret something. So. Yeah. I think mentors are important, but the thing I've, I've learned uh, now that I'm in a mentoring position, uh, I mentor uh, students for Oxford Books, is that I get as much out of that process as, yeah. as hopefully they do. Um, you feel as though you're giving something back, and it's a, it's a good feeling. Yeah, uh, but equally, they have taught me, like Instagram, for example. Yeah. I am not a child of Instagram. My, one of my mentees last year spent a long time trying to explain it to me. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I'm any of the wiser, but, um, but anyway, that's a, it, well, it should be a two-way process. Well, it's mainstream in terms of how to merchandise and how to sell. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Okay, well... We're going to wrap this up now, but uh, if people want to get a hold of you to learn more about you, what's the best method to do so? Uh, my email address is robin at bespokehotels, all one word with an S on the end, dot com. Um, so happy to take an email and, and field it from there. Yeah. If you see me at a public speaking event, try not to throw rotten tomatoes at me. <laughs> Come and ask me at the end of the session, I'll try and give you some time. If you want to know more about um, the main company it's bespokehotels.com if you want to know more about the Institute of Hospitality it's the IOH um, and if you'd like to know a bit more about the charitable cause then it's bluebadgeaccessawards.com hope that helps Fabulous Robin Shepherd. thank you very much for spending some time with us My pleasure See you soon okay. Thank you And there we have it what a real treat it was to host Robin on the show and I'm sure we only scratched the surface of his story bank Once again, apologies for the less than perfect sound. Don't forget, we'll be launching a new episode every Wednesday. But in the meantime, we'd love for you to subscribe to the show and give us a like and a share on any of the usual social channels. See you next time.